All right, good morning. Good to see everybody here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So jump into Galatians 2. That's where we're going to be, um, and that's where we've been. We started this whole series in Galatians. We did one last week. We're going to try to do one chapter every week. As long as I don't get too long-winded, we should be able to get through. Uh, what are you laughing about? <laughs> that the first service went over 20 minutes? Like, listen, we're trying to fit it in. All right, so one chapter every single week so that we can get it done in six weeks. So as you're turning to Galatians 2, let me give you the idea how Paul writes, um, the differences in his writing in his other letters to the church in Galatia, because there were big differences. So it's very important to understand this. Paul, when he writes, he writes in two different ways. One is you understand the truth of the gospel, but you just haven't figured out how to, to live that way. Does that make sense? So like, here's the truth to the Corinthian church. He's like, you guys got to figure out how to take the truth and how to live because you haven't been able to connect those two things together. But here's what he would say to him. But God's grace is sufficient, right? That's what he would say. Like, listen, I get it. You know what's right. You aren't doing what you need to do, but God, you, you, God's grace is sufficient. And you can be guaranteed. This is what he would say to the Corinthian church. You're, they're not living the right way or to the people he'd write to. You're not living the right way, but because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, you can be guaranteed a place in heaven, right? Because that's what the grace and mercy does, right? So he makes sure that they're aware, hey, you guys are making a lot of mistakes, but at least you know that you're making the mistakes. Does that make sense? At least you know that it's a problem. Compared to what he was writing to the churches, because there were multiple churches that he was writing to in Galatia, when he was writing to them, it was like a 911 emergency, right? To the, Galatia, to the other churches, it was like, you need to get it right, and over time, and grace and mercy, this was, you better get it right. There is a major problem. Here's the problem. They took the truth of the gospel and distorted it, right? And because they distorted the truth of the gospel, then here's what he was saying to them. There is no grace sufficient for the distortion of the truth of the gospel. So if you're going to take the truth, which distortion of the gospel or distortion of doctrine means this, you're adding to it or you're taking away what was originally written inside of scripture for us to know. Does that make sense? So if you're distorting it, saying, I'm going to, I disagree with this, so I'm going to take some of it out, or I think I need to add something to it, and so you add something to it, so they distorted it, and here's what he would say to them. And remember, he was not talking to the outside world. He was talking to the church, okay? This is really important. He was talking to all of these people that are gathered here today inside of a room that would claim to be, okay, and listen to me claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Here's what he said to the church in Galatia, to those of you who claim, if you distort the gospel, grace is not sufficient and you are going to hell. Right? Like those are pretty powerful words, right? This isn't like you're making some mistakes, thanks for the grace of God, we, we need to you know, fix some things that you distorted the gospel. If you're gonna add to it or you're gonna take away from it, there's a problem and if you don't change this problem right away, not only are you going to hell, you're leading other people to the same place you're going, okay? That's the idea of him writing to the Galatian church. Now, in Galatians 2, we're gonna talk through, again, what is the truth of the gospel and what does it look like? But here's what I want you to think about. Do you think about the state of the world today? You know, when I say the state of the world, I'm talking about kids who grew up in churches that are no longer in church. 
Like we know that's somewhat of an epidemic, right? They grew up in a church and then they get to a certain age and then they're gone. And everybody's like, oh, they'll be back someday. (laughs) I'm not really sure that that's true. Like all that confidence that you had that these kids are just gonna somehow show up someday like they used to. Because it used to be like you grew up in a church and then you left the church and then you married somebody and that woman would encourage you to go to church but you never really wanted to go. And then you had kids and you're like, well, I better go to church now. I gotta make sure I might be, you know, not where I need to be but I need to make sure my kid is. Nobody ever went through that, right? Like this idea of, you know, you're out. and you're, I don't think that's working anymore. Right, And so a lot of families that I'll talk to, I'll say, like, we'll be talking through it, and they'll be talking about where their kids are, and they always, not always, usually say the same thing. My kids should know better because they grew up in the church. Do you ever say that? Like, my kids should know better. They, they were at all the Sunday schools. They were at all the youth. They've heard it from me. They've heard it. And you know what I want to say? Maybe I don't always say this. You know what I want to say? Maybe their biggest problem was growing up in the church because they saw a system that didn't work, right? They saw a system, and again, I'm just gonna use my own example because I grew up in a church, right? I'm I'm one of those people. So I grew up in a church, and, and again, some of you are really gonna relate with this. Some of you are not gonna relate with this. Like some of us are a little bit more rebellious than others, like a few like some of us have a, like a rebellious spirit. Like my mom used to carry wooden spoons in her car. <laughs> and if you were running your mouth, which was a lot, she would just break them over your face, right? And she'd just replace them, like replace the stock of wooden spoons. That's just the way that it was. At the older you get, you know, the more spoons she'd go through or she just finally gave up because... It doesn't hurt as bad anymore, right? Like, but some of us have more of a rebellious spirit. And so when you go into the church, you know what the church tells you, right? Good people follow the rules. Bad people don't follow the rules. Well, is anybody else like me? Do you, do you struggle sometimes following the rules? Right? Because I'm like, I think those rules suck. <laughs> like, why would I want to follow those rules? Those rules don't make any sense. And I struggled with this idea, like, if church is about good people and bad people and good people determined by all the rule followers because you know what I found out as I got older? You only follow the rules in front of the people that are watching and then you're a hellion just like me. (laughs) None of you are gonna shake your head because you're like, that's what it is. Like church becomes that, right? Like everybody behaves and follows the rules around church people. You know, like, if we're going to be around other people at a restaurant, like, you can't do certain things because the church people are sitting over there. Or you act a different way when church people are around. Like, you started to, and so we wonder why kids struggle with this because they're trying to figure out, like, I'm never going to be good enough. I never do enough. And at the end of the day, if this is all church is about is being who can be good and who can be bad and really the good people are all fakes, who wants that? Like, who wants that out of a church? Like, who wants people that are, that are going to fake most of their life the things that they are doing? In fact, you know, for me, it's went as far as to say, like, I watched all these things happen. And, you know, when I was a kid, and I don't remember how old I was, but anybody remember the flannel boards? Anybody remember the days of the flannel board? So this is like the younger crowd. Like, there's a, there was this thing. So, like, when you went to Sunday school class, they had this flannel board. And it had, like, animals, like, that you stick up to them. 
So my teacher left one day, so there's animals and people, and I decided to take those people and have them do things that they weren't supposed to be doing <laughs> on the flannel board so that when she came back in, I thought it was funny. She didn't think it was very funny, right? She pulled me outside, slapped me across the face, went and got my mom. You know my mom with the wooden spoons. You know, it just, <laughs> like, but here's what I want you to see, right? So for all of my life, this was my view of Christianity. There were people who were good rule followers, but really most of them were fake, and then there were the rest of us that are never gonna fit in, right? That's what I grew up with. That's, that's how I perceived. In fact, even when I got to the place where I really wanted faith for my own, like the first thing that somebody would say to me is after I give my life to Christ, what do I do next, right? The first thing they would say is stop doing these things, well, how about the things I sh like, should be doing? You know what I mean? Like, doesn't it seem weird that the first thing that you would say to somebody, get, you know what you should do? Go reach other people. We'll work on all the rest of that stuff. We'll work on all the stop doings at some point. But anybody that's a believer, you know what you, the first thing you should do is go reach your friends that aren't. Like, that's the first thing. Forget about all the don't do's. But you know, the first thing that happens inside of a church, you give your life to Jesus, and they're like, stop doing and stop doing and stop doing and stop doing. And if you don't stop doing, then your faith wasn't real. Judas, can you make it any harder, right? So what I want you to, what I want you to hear, hear me say, and I want, this is from the, the, the Bible too, is there is no power in being a rule follower. You will try for the rest of your life to follow all the rules, and you know what you're going to find out? You can't do it. You can't do it. And you can try as hard as you want to follow all the rules, but there is no power in trying. You know what's going to happen? You're going to try really hard, and you do really good for a while, and then you know what's going to happen? You have to fall off the wagon, then you're going to try really hard again, then you're going to fall off the wagon, then you're going to try really hard, and you're going to fall off the wagon. Because there is no power in this outside religion that you think pleases God. Listen to me. Following the rules does not please God. It do, following the rules does not make God happy. I mean, like, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Like, that, it, doesn't, it doesn't make God happy. Think about this for a second. You, you've been trying your whole life. You've been on this treadmill your whole life of trying to make God happy by following all the rules, but guess what happens? You get tired of the treadmill or you fall off. And then you're like, oh, God's not happy and I'm not worthy and I can't do. And then you fall away for a while and then all of a sudden somebody says, like, you should probably get back on the treadmill again because you're so far away, get back on the treadmill. Then you run again until you get tired. Anybody on that? It doesn't work. If you want to change your life, start with this. There's power in the gospel. That's where your power comes from. Power comes because Jesus Christ is going to live in you, not that you're going to be religious on the outside. That's where the power comes from. And it doesn't mean you're going to get all of your things right in your life. It doesn't mean you're going to follow all the rules. It only means this, that the power of the gospel will turn you into the thing that God wants you to be. That's the power of the gospel. Are you excited about that? <laughs> right? 
Like, are you excited? You should be excited about this, that you can get off the treadmill and allow Jesus to live in you. And as long as you allow Jesus to live in you, you will become what he wants you to be. Right? You should be super excited that you who have been trying so hard, if you would just accept the power of the gospel, will be then what God wants you to be. Like That's where we should land. And when we read in Galatians, here's what we're going to try to figure out. One, what do you do with somebody who isn't? So let's say somebody has distorted the gospel, right? Because part of the problem in the church today is we confront things that don't matter. You've never been a part of that church? You've never been a part of the church where you have those people that were like, hey, hey, Ernie, um, did you see who was at Pizza Hut drinking a beer? <laughs> like, did, did you see him? Right? Should we confront him? And you know what? Actually, somebody was outside of the church. You know what they were doing? They smoked a cigarette. They said they're a believer. Like, I don't know. We need to, you, you see what I'm saying, right? Like, we got to confront those people. Like, we got we to gotta come face to face. We got to tell them what they're doing is leading them. I'm like, Judas Priest, there's way bigger things, way bigger things to talk about. You know why? Because listen to me. You will confront actions that you disagree with and not confront the heart, which is going to condemn them to hell. True? Because you pick something you don't like. This is the way it works with the law. The way it works is you don't like certain things, and so you want to make sure the things that you don't like, other people don't do. So you're really passionate about this. So then you go to somebody and say, you shouldn't do that either, right? Like, because you're passionate about it. But on the inside, right? Like, on the inside, they could have no change, but as long as they're in the mold that you want them to be, you know, you've created a little religious idol and you put a little list of what that person should be and as long as they fulfill the list, you're like, that person must be going to heaven. How, do, how did you determine that? Because their actions of their life will be this. That does not determine whether a person goes to heaven because of the religious idol that you've put together and what you think they should be doing, okay? So when we look in this, we need to confront when it's time to confront when people have distorted the gospel and turned the gospel and added to it or taken away, we need to confront it. And confront it, this is what we're going to learn. How do we confront it? We confront it first because we love Jesus. That's why you confront somebody that distorted the gospel, because we love Jesus. You know why else? Because we love people. You know why it's worth it? You know why you should do it? Because you love your neighbor enough to not let them be deceived their entire life and end up in hell someday. Right? You love them enough. I'm going to go talk to them because I love them enough. I don't want them to have the gospel distorted. I don't want them to be deceived. I'm going to go tell them what's true. This is what's true, right? But we do it in love. We're going to learn that. The other thing we're going to learn is what is the true gospel? Maybe, maybe for all of your life, you've grown up in church and you don't even know what the true gospel is. Maybe, because we're going to have a response at the end of the service and you're going to be able to respond in a couple different ways. Like one of the ways you're going to be able to respond today, I hope, is you're going to hear the gospel and you're going to be like, yes, I am so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ because he lives in me. And you're, there's a confirmation that today confirms the decision I made a long time ago that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins and because of that, I can spend eternity with him. Confirmation. For some of us, you know what we're going to have to do today? 
You're not going to like this. You're going to have to repent. For some of us today, we need to repent because even though that you've heard the truth of the gospel, you have been adding to it or you've been taking it away for, for a lot of your life. And not only have you been adding to it and taking it away, you've been presenting the gospel to your children and to other people that is false. And you need to repent. You know what's so cool? You get a chance to repent. Just because we've been doing it wrong, you know what's so great about the Lord and Savior is he's like, you can repent. I love you. Open the door, he's there. Knock, he'll open. Like, he is there, he wants to be there, so you don't have to be concerned. We just need to repent. You know what else, and this, we've been praying for this, you know what else we're praying for and hoping for? New life. We're praying for people today in this room that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for what it really is, and that they will give their life to Jesus today. That's what we're praying for, right? We're praying that once you understand the truth and the power of the gospel as we go through Galatians, that we're going to see what the power of the true gospel can do that the law could never accomplish. Good? All right, so let's start. Galatians 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. So we did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, uh, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They add nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter, an apostle to be circumcised, was also at work with me and the apostles to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, when they recognized that the grace recognized the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to be to the circumcised. All they asked was that we would continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had uh, been eager to do all along. So I'm gonna give you a little footnote real quick, let you know what's going on. You can read all about this in Acts 15. So if you wanna go back, there was a meeting of the Jerusalem Council. Here's what was happening. So if you remember, the movement of Jesus started with the Jews. Does that make sense? So the Jewish people and the Jewish people had a law, right? And they followed the law. And then when Jesus came and died on the cross, the first spread of the gospel was to Jews, okay? And here was the hard time for Jewish people, just like it would be for you. You know how you grow up with certain traditions that even if somebody says you don't need to do those things, you just can't stop doing them? Do you know what I mean? You've just done it in a certain way and you've done things like this and, and somebody all of a sudden says, you don't have to do that anymore. You're like, well, I mean, I have done it forever and can't I just keep doing it? So this was a struggle for 
the Jews, right? So the message who Peter, James, and John were preaching this message to these Jews, and they were struggling, trying to figure out how to have freedom in Christ. The whole, you remember the whole law discussion, what the law couldn't do? You know, the freedom in Christ could do. This was their message, and they couldn't do away with all these things, so they were struggling. Well, Paul then went out, and he preached to the Gentiles, right? So the, the the Jews were somebody who believed in one God but not, did not believe in the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, so they brought Jesus in, Jesus the Messiah. People believed, right? So that's, they had overcome the law. Then when he goes out to the Gentiles, the Gentiles or the Greeks would be these people that were out there that had many gods, right? So they had a bunch of different gods. Paul would show up in a city, and here's what he would say to them. You know how you believed in a bunch of different gods? You know, and you know that unknown God that you guys talk about all the time on, you know, when he's at Mars Hill, you talk about, like, you guys talk about this unknown God. You know who that unknown God is, right? It's our God. And guess what? Through Jesus Christ, through one man and one God, you can be saved, right? You can, your life can be changed. If you quit believing in all of those gods, you believe in the one true God, you believe that he, that he died on a cross for your sins and rose from the dead, and you can be free and you can be saved. How cool is that, right? And they're all like by the thousands saying, dude, one God saved? No, like there's value in human, like there's so many things in there. Like they were thousands of Greeks, Gentiles were coming to know Jesus, and they were super excited, but guess what happened? You know, when something good always happens, oh, something bad always has to follow. Right, so thousands of people are getting saved. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, these Judaizers, people who were Jewish Christians, right, and just so we understand this, if you add or take away from the gospel, you are a false teacher, and a Jew should fear hell. A Judaizer was somebody who believed in Jesus, but added to his message. You know what the one thing they added to that they were fighting over? That you should be circumcised. Now, <laughs> you don't think that's a little funny? Because I want you to think about this, guys. Right? You're like, Jesus, and you raise your hands, and you came to the altar, and you prayed, and you got saved, and all of a sudden, the Jewish guy shows up with a machete and said, next week... Didn't anybody see their kids circumcised? That is life-changing. That's terrible, right? Like, that whole thing. Now think about it. You're 40 years old, and here comes this guy saying, you know what? You're a believer. The only thing you need to do to be a real believer is we'll see you next week. You see, this was not only a, like, mental problem and a physical problem. It was something that they were adding to the gospel that they should have never added to the gospel, right? So they came to the Jerusalem council. At the Jerusalem council, they had this discussion, do the Greeks have to follow the Jewish law? That was the discussion, right? They ended that meeting with, nope, they do not, right? They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to do any of the Jewish laws. There's freedom in Jesus. So Paul, keep reaching the Gentiles, you know, and, and the rest of you keep reaching the Jews, and we'll just agree that the one thing that we want to make sure everybody does is take care of the poor, right? That was Acts 15. So he sets this precedence right from the beginning, like we need to understand this is what they were arguing over, this is what the problem was, that again, the Judaizers thought law added to grace was a good thing, 
Right from the beginning, the Jewish council decided that's a bad thing. Now, here's what goes on next in, in verse 11. So here's then what happens from an opposition standpoint. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcised group. The other Jews joined him, joined him in hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So he confronts him, right? So we need to learn this, learn from this. What should be the things that we should confront, right? What should be the things that in a person's life that we should take the time to sit down with them and talk to them about? So for sure, we see that one of the things that's worth a confrontation is he twisted the gospel. So did you see what Peter was doing? So Peter preached freedom in Christ until other people came around that made him feel comfortable and all of a sudden now there wasn't freedom in Christ. Did you see that when we read it? Are you completely bored? It gets better, don't worry, it's coming, right? Like listen, so Peter, like, because what happened is all of a sudden when a bunch of people started getting saved, Jews and Gentiles were meeting together. Does that make more sense? So they're meeting together. So Peter's here with his church, mixed of people that were Jew and Gentile, and there's freedom in Christ, and people are getting saved, and great things are happening, and all of a sudden, the circumcised group shows up, and he's like, oh, crap, I don't want to make anybody mad, so I'm going to remove myself, and I'm not going to cause confrontation, and I'm going to remove myself, and by removing myself, what I'm saying to the congregation is the circumcised group or the Jews are better than the Gentiles. And that there is no more freedom in Christianity, right, by making that statement. And here's the other reason why you should confront, and I want you to think about this for a second. Not only is twisting the gospel bad for you, just so you understand, when you lead other people astray, now listen to me for a second. You remember that scripture verse that says, uh, if you lead a little one astray, like what should happen to you? If you don't know, let me tell you. If you lead somebody astray, better to tie a millstone around your neck and be drowned at the bottom of the ocean. That's some harsh words, right? Because here's what I want you to understand. See, when we're thinking about when we add to, this is why I want to make sure that you get this. Like some people are like, well, I just added a little bit or took away a little bit. It's not that big a deal. No, it is a big deal. And the reason that Paul was confronting, because he's saying, not only is it affecting you, guess what? There are other people that are going to go to hell because of your message and your deception that you're bringing inside of the church. Right, that your actions and your responsibilities and the things that you're doing are leading people astray. It's not just you and your message, which is a big deal, and you should think about this. Because when we get to, this one I want you to understand, when we get to the places, here's the true gospel, I want you to understand, like back then it was circumcision, like kind of a weird thing, but it was just adding one thing, Right? you know, and, and maybe some festivals or some other things. It's not like they were saying, don't believe in Jesus. You hear what I'm, does that make sense? Like these were people that still said they believed in Jesus. They just added something to the, to the mix that would say, but true believers do these things, right? 
So when I, I want you to be aware of, so when we get to the place where we're talking about the true gospel, if you are someone who has twisted, added to, taken away, and not intentionally, but possibly unintentionally, because it's what you've taught your children, leading people astray, it's good for somebody to confront you. Say, what you're teaching is wrong. And, and it's worth the conversation. And the other thing is, and this is kind of back then, it's like, duh. You know, confront them face to face. For this is, a, this is a bigger issue for us. And I don't know if this is true, but I'm just gonna say it because I think it's true. People who have fights via text, email, or social media are cowards. I just don't think you have enough guts to just sit down with them and say, I think you suck. <laughs> you see, I've learned in my own life, like if somebody sends me an email and says you suck, and I'm just like, good, let's meet. Right? Like, I'm not going to argue with you whether I do or don't suck. I would just want to meet with you, right? Because you got to have things face-to-face. Have anybody ever had those text messages where you read into what people were thinking? Or somebody sends an email, and you read the email, and you're pissed off. Oops, I mean, you're mad, you know, about the email because of how it was said. You know what I mean? Like, somebody said it in such a way, and you read into it, and you're thinking, this is what they really meant. They didn't mean any of it, but you've created this... You should actually, if you have a problem with somebody, you should meet them face to face. And you should sit down with them and you should have the conversation, especially in these circumstances where eternity is at stake. You should have the conversations and you should meet face to face. So we learn what we should do in the midst of confrontation. Then he goes on and says in verse 14, when I saw that, there were, that you were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you, uh, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth uh, and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I have destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might be alive for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for, it's, uh, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So this is gonna be an assumption, but I wanna make sure that we get this. Okay, so when, when he's talking about all these things, how the law does not justify, right, that the law cannot justify you, so let's make sure we talk about this. So back in the day, right, when they're talking about the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible that you now hold, right? So the first five books of the Bible were considered the law, right? And so for the people at that time, it was saying that if we just follow all of the rules of the law, then we will be right in front of God. Does that make sense? 
So if you can follow all the laws, God's gonna be happy, right? So the problem, even back with the Jews, was the same problem we have today. They were like, follow all the rules, God loves you. Don't follow all the rules, guess what? God hates you, right? And so think about this for a second. So there were 600 and some laws. There's a debate about how many actual laws there were. So think about this. So if you didn't follow all 600 laws, right, you were in trouble and you weren't, God was not happy with you. So what do you think most people tried to do? Be a better person, justified, make God happy by following the rules, right? Paul is saying, obviously, that was a terrible idea, right? Nobody, first of all, do we get this? Nobody, when God put the law in place, do you think he believed that people could follow it? No. Why did he put the law in place? So that you would recognize your need for a savior. So that you would recognize there's no possible way you're going to be able to live all of these things out. No way, no possible way. You should try, and when you don't, there should be guilt, and when there is guilt, you should be like, I'm thankful for, for a Messiah. I need a Messiah. I need something, because I can't follow all the rules. Does that make sense? Now, here was the problem, though. They, like us, did not know how to respond to guilt, okay? So one of the things that if you know what the law is, just like it is for here, so when you know what the law is and you do something wrong, you feel I hope, right? Like, whatever that law is, you feel guilty, right? So now here's the problem. We, just like them, have no idea how to deal with guilt, right? Because when we feel guilty, you have an opportunity to respond. What do you do with your guilt? Well, here's what a lot of people do with their guilt. They look at it and like, I feel guilty, so I need to make it so that I no longer feel guilty anymore. So you know how you do that? One of the ways you do that is by, if this was the rule, right? So if this was the rule and I feel guilty when I break it, you know what you're gonna do? You're just gonna change the rule, right? You're just gonna lower the bar. You're gonna make it so you no longer feel guilty. So if this is God's standard, you're just gonna say, well, I mean, that can't be a standard because I'll never be able to reach it. I'll continue to feel guilty. I don't wanna deal with my guilt, so I'm gonna lower the bar. Right, so if I lower the bar, I no longer feel guilty. You know, and or you just say the, the law isn't like, um, doesn't matter to you. Like I say this all the time, like, you know, like I hate the seatbelt law. I think it's the dumbest one ever, you know, so I don't ever wear my seatbelt, right? Is there cops in here? <laughs> well, I have to wear my seatbelt on the thing that dings, but on the trucks that it doesn't ding, I may wear my seatbelt. Anyway. So here's the, th here's the deal. Like, I think the law, I think it's a dumb law, right? Like that you, somebody had makes you, do, you remember the whole rebellious side of me? Like, I just think it's dumb that somebody makes me do something. Anyway, so makes me be safe. So at the end of the day, what I do is so I don't longer feel guilty anymore, I'm just like, well, that law should have never been created, so I don't even feel guilty anymore for not doing it. And you're all laughing, but you got the same thing, right? Pick the thing that you don't like, right? And you've changed it to what you want it to be, and you just move it down, and you do the same thing I do, right? You just find the law that you can't uphold anymore, and you change it. And or, this is what other people do. 
So once you have a law that you can't uphold anymore, then the other thing is you just become numb to it. Right, so if this is the law and this is the standard and I feel guilty for not being able to uphold the standard, you just become numb to it and you become numb in different ways. Like some people become numb like I'm never gonna be able to do it so I'm just gonna drink enough and smoke enough pot that I'll just numb to all of it. <laughs> Only a few of you are going like, uh, you, you see, you are one of those people that never break the law, right? So you, the, everybody, all of us lawbreakers are going like, mm-hmm, had those nights before, right? Like, been down those roads before where when you feel guilty, you just make yourself numb to it, and you just try to continue to keep yourself numb to it because you don't like the feeling of guilt, right? So you do anything to be able to numb yourself to whatever that feeling is. Right? And you can numb yourself to it by again, right, just making it so you in your mind, and this is happening. You know how people, you know, when we look in the world today and you can wonder why people could call themselves Christian people when, and live in such a certain way, and we know that they're looking at what the law is and they're saying the law just isn't true anymore? You know how they get to that point? Because you've been numb to it so long, right? because you had to do something to make yourself not feel guilty anymore, so you just don't believe it's true, and pretty soon, you live long enough that you don't even feel guilty about your sin. Anybody ever been there where you've justified it for so long that you no longer even feel bad because you've numbed yourself to this is even a sin anymore, right? Which is a huge problem, right? Because remember this. The bar and the law is up there for a reason, right? And the reason is this. Guilt is supposed to move you to the only person who can take your guilt away, which is Jesus Christ, your Messiah. You see, you've been trying to remove it all of your life, and I just want to please hear me right when I say this. If you raised or lowered what the truth of the gospel is, these aren't my words, this is his words, you should be in fear of hell. And you know why? Because the reason that you raised and lowered that is because you tried to set up a life that you're comfortable with, not that one that's forgiven. You see, one of the things that I recognize all the time, it wasn't my job to make my life comfortable. It wasn't my job to raise and lower standards to fit the way that I live. It was my job to recognize I am a sinner falling short of the glory of God and that because of the grace and mercy and blood of Jesus Christ, I am now saved. That's my job, right? That's how I'm supposed to live. The way that I can wake up every day is not whether I'm comfortable, but whether I'm right. Does that make sense? You see, comfort, unfortunately, is not right standing for some of us, right? It's not, we shouldn't be comfortable with what the gospel says to us and then be like, oh yeah, I got it all right. You will never have it all right. You will never be good enough. You will never, no matter what you try to do in your life, you will never make God happy because you showed up to church today. See, some of you were thinking like, praise God, somebody ought to be happy I even woke up today. Surely God's happy that I got my butt out of bed and got here. Now, I'm not expecting to meet Jesus. I'm not expecting for life change. I'm not expecting for the miraculous. I, he should just be happy I'm here. Well, I'm here to tell you, he's not. 
Some of you are like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, right? And I want you to hear this the right way. See, sometimes we misinterpret the thing that makes God happy. Because see, the other thing that we need to recognize, we already know that we can never, like the actions of our life are never gonna live up to the standards of God. We already got that, right? So you already know that because you can't live up to the standards of God, if you think that God's happy because you live up to the standards, you realize you're never gonna make him happy. Are we tracking on the same part? Right? So we already know that that's never going to happen. So here's why we know when Scripture says this. You know the thing that pleases God is faith. Faith. So you know when here's the bar and you're here and you just wake up every day and you'll be like, you know what, I can never meet that bar, but I'm going to do the best I can that because of the power of Jesus Christ that lives in me, I'm going to live by faith that not by me will I meet that bar, but through him. And you're going to have faith. But when you lower the bar, you don't have any faith. You know why I tell families all the time, you know why your kids aren't coming back to church? Because you told them to keep the rules, but they never saw faith. There is no system of rules that works. But what does work for them is a family that lives by faith. You want your kids to come back to church? Then show them what really works. You already know rules don't work. Faith works. Living by faith works doing the things that God calls us to. In fact, here's what I want you to see. I'm gonna show you a a story in scripture because I don't want you to just think that, like, where did he come up with God's not happy because I showed up to church today, right? Like, where where does that stuff come from? What I want you to see is in scripture, so turn to Genesis 4. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? So I'm gonna give you a a picture of what was going on. So remember this uh, because it's hard. Sometimes when you read scripture, you think things just happen like boom, 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 like the next day. So in the story of Cain and Abel, here's what you're going to see. So Cain and Abel, um, uh, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. We all understand what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan came in. He tempted. You know, they ate. Sin entered the world, right? At this point, no blood had ever been shed. We got it, right? No blood had ever been shed. They sinned. They covered themselves with fig leaves because guess, guess how they felt? Guilty, right? So they tried to, on their own, cover their guilt, Okay, here's what God did at the time. God killed an animal, first blood that was ever shed, and covered them with the animal skins, okay? Here's what he wanted you to see. Here's a non-negotiable. For the rest of eternity, until Jesus Christ comes back, this is a non-negotiable that will never change that is the truth in the gospel. Are you ready? Sin, right? Every time that somebody sins, Something has to die. This is non-negotiable. If you want your sin covered, something's, something is going to have to die. Blood is going to have to be shed, and that blood is what's going to cover your sin because this is a non-negotiable. He's not asking for your blood. Here's what he's saying. He's asking for the blood of an innocent animal. But because of your sin, something innocent is always going to have to die in your place for that sin. Non-negotiable. Got that? It's non-negotiable from the beginning. Now, enter into the story of Cain and Abel. Let's see how this works. So in the beginning, Genesis 4, starting in verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to her brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. 
in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering of fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, what was the, what was the law? What was the expectation? What should have the offering been? Something has to die, blood has to be shed, it has to be a sacrifice, and it has to be, you saw how it come from the first fruits, right? It has to be not some of the fruit that you have, but because of the, you remember the negotiation thing we talked about? So I want you to think about this. So we already know what the rule was, right? So what's the rule? What, what should the offering be? Something has to die. It has to be an innocent lamb. It has to be something without blemish. It has to be something that has to be killed. It has to be something that's offered. It's supposed to cost you something. That's a non-negotiable, okay? So when we look at this non-negotiable, what did we see in this that Cain brought? What did Cain bring? Some fruit. So he brought some fruit. What did Abel bring? The first, the lamb, the right? He brought... What he was told. Now, here's what I want you to see. Don't miss this. Did they both bring an offering? They both brought an offering. They're both doing something, right? It's not like one showed up to the offering table, the other one didn't. They both brought an offering. They both brought something. It's just one negotiated what they thought that offering should be, and one did what he was told. You see the difference? One understood by faith, it's going to cost me something if I kill this animal and I bring it as a sacrifice. The other said, I can't afford the cost, but I'm still going to bring something. And we in the church have lived that way forever and think that that's an acceptable offering to God. And it is not. It is not. In fact, what's funny is, is that I talk about this. We don't talk about money much, but I want you to think about this. This is what God says. You're supposed to tithe money to the church. That's what it says, right? That's what it says, right? Now, here's what I hear people say all the time. Well, I don't tithe my money, I tithe my time. And I'm like, okay, where did it ever say that tithing your time was a replacement for your money? You negotiated something to make you stop feeling guilty for not giving. True? And you think, here's what's funny, you think God's excited that you tithed your time. You're like, look at me, I give all my time and I'm sacrificing. He's like, the angels in heaven are not rejoicing because you negotiated with God what works for you. That hard to hear? That is hard to hear. Because we do it all the time. Like we change the bar all the time to fit the lifestyle that fits us. And then we think somehow God's super excited with us because at least we're doing something. Well, let's just hear how super excited he was. The Lord, took, the Lord looked with favor on Abel, right, the one that did what he was told, and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. 
Again, so God looked at him, he accepted one, and he didn't accept the other. Cain's first response? How was Cain's response? He's mad. Why was he mad? Who is God to tell me, at least I gave something, why wouldn't you accept it? Just like you get angry with God when he won't bless you when you give him half of what you're supposed to be giving him. And you're all mad. Like, I can't figure out why I won't bless my children. I can't figure out why I won't bless my marriage. I can't figure out why I won't have favor on my life. Well, are you giving all of it? Or have you chose to negotiate and then get ticked off when he won't change anything? I think we kind of land on that other side, right? Like, we're like, Cain, we're ticked off. He ain't changing nothing because we're not giving, you know, what we should be. And so, but here's the, here's the great thing. You know, there's always a cool part about the story that I love. Well, guess what? God doesn't, God doesn't like, and you're forever screwed because you didn't give the right offering, right? So when you look at this story, you can sit out there and say, like, dude, this is me. He's talking to me. This is going on. Well, guess what? You're not forever screwed. There's a chance. You can do something different. You can have a response to once you recognize you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you get a respond, right? Here's what he says. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? What does he tell him? You got a chance. Just change things. You got a chance. Just make it right. You got a chance. Do this. And not only you should do it because you want this relationship in favor with God, listen to what he says next. But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do you see what he's saying? You can be angry and you cannot change. And it's not just whether or not you do or don't follow the Lord. Sin is crouching at your door, and sin is crouching at your kid's door. Sin is crouching at your family's door. And if you don't do the right thing, sin is no longer going to be crouching there anymore. It's going to destroy you. You have a decision. You can make a decision, and you can do what is right, and, and God will have favor, and things will change, or you can decide to do whatever you want to do, but sin will be crouching at your door, and there will be forever consequences as long as you let sin crouch at the door. Because as soon as you open that door, you know, here's what he's saying. Your next decision is whether you open the door or close the door. Do you see that? The decision you make of whether to make things right or to continue to disobey God is whether you close the door to the attacks of Satan on your life and your family or you open the doors and say, have at him. That's your choice. That's the thing that you get. You know, because he says sin is crouching. This is what happens. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord God then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood and you, and from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will, be rest, you will be a restless wanderer for all of your life. Now listen to me. If you don't already know this, I'll just give you from experience. If you choose the path of trying to please God through the actions of your life, you will wander around for all of your life and never find peace. 
I know this, right, because I was on this treadmill at times in my life where you're running the treadmill to try to please God, and guess what happens? You can only run so long until you either get tired or you fall off. True? Like, you can run so long, but you're going to fall off at some point, or you're going to get tired, and you're going to quit, right? So we know that the treadmill of life is not going to bring you peace that surpasses all understanding. You're going to restlessly try to work your way into the favor of God, and you're never going to be able to find the favor of God. And all he's saying to you is like, listen, if you don't want to be a restless wanderer, put your faith in the only person who can bring you peace that surpasses all understanding, and that's Jesus Christ. Then, because this is what you know now, this is what I know, then the circumstances of life that don't always go your way will not destroy your faith, but build it. Will not destroy your relationship, but will grow it. Will not destroy, you know, the, the, this inner peace that you have, but will grow it, because you now have made a decision on, on who is going to be the ruler of your life. Does that make sense? Now, with this in mind, I want you to think about something. You will always have a choice in your life. Isn't this great? You always have a choice. Two paths you're going to take. You can either take the path of Cain or you can take the path of Abel. Okay? We see this in Scripture, what happens. Okay? So if you're completely bored, hey, we're getting ready to end it up. Don't miss this part. Okay? I know we're long, but listen to me. This is the part you don't want to miss. You're going to come to a fork in your road, and you're going to be able to make a decision all of your life. You can make a decision like Cain and like we see people in Scripture do. So you can follow the works-based righteousness, right? So your work makes you right with God, right? Your work brings you closer to God. Does that make sense? That's the, the way of Cain. Your work will make you closer to God and make you right with God. In fact, we see this. You remember the Tower of Babel? Anybody remember the story of the Tower of Babel? So there was a group of people who said, you know what, we want to get really close to God. So they decided they were going to build this tower, and if they build the tower high enough, they could climb the tower and they could be closer to God. Well, guess what God does with works-based righteousness or works-based trying to get closer to him? Do you know what he did to the tower? Destroyed it and dispersed the people. And it's what he's going to do in your life or is doing in your life right now. If you are on a path of works-based righteousness that you think that your works are somehow making you right with God or somehow making God happy, at some point that house of cards is falling. And not only is that house of cards falling, it's going to be dispersed and you get a choice. You can either start building the house again or you can take the way of Abel, the faith. Because think of these two, we got the Tower of Babel, but what about Noah? So think about Noah for a second. So the difference between, they both built something, right? But the one built something because they felt like what they did would make them closer to God. Noah built it because God told him to do it. There was no, my work is somehow going to gain me favor with God. It's the only thing that I know how to do in my life. This is what Noah would say. God said, build an ark. Well, that's a dumb idea, but if he said to do it, I'm doing it. Right? Like who builds an ark out in the middle of the desert where there's never been any rain? People who would understand that the best decision you could ever make in your life is just listen to him. You want to get closer to God? You want to build your relationship with God? Be like Noah. Wake up every day with this in mind. Not how your works can make him happy, but how you can be obedient to what he wants. You see the difference? 
See, if you wake up every day and you try really hard to get into the right position, the one thing that you're going to recognize is you're going to always fall short. But if I wake up every day and say, you know what, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'm just going to do it, then your relationship with him will grow deeper and deeper and deeper. All right, so the worship team's going to come back up. All right, I want to give you guys uh, the gospel. Right? I want you to understand this because I, I want a response today you know, from people, a confirmation, a repentance, or you know, people coming to know Jesus for the first time. Here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I hope that you got out of today. Right? You are incapable of doing anything to overcome your sin. Incapable. Does it matter how you grew up? Does it matter how good you think you are? You are incapable of covering, making God happy, being justified by all the works of your life. You are incapable of doing it. You will never, ever be able to do it. The other thing that I hope that you've realized through this is that it's not the actions of a person's life that makes them right. You know what makes them right? Their heart. And when your heart is right, it leads to the actions of your life. Does that make sense? So when we look at people, we're like, is that person good, not good? And like, well, they do this or that. No, listen, what we should be looking at is where is their heart? And when their heart is right, here's what we know. Somebody whose heart is right will always have the same response. I will never be good enough. And I will always make sense. But I guarantee you, I will always love Jesus. Do you see the difference? Compared to somebody who says, well, you know why I deserve it? Because I do and do and do and I've done and I've done and I've done and I follow all the rules. That person's heart isn't where it's supposed to be because no matter how many rules you follow or how good you think you are, you're not making it. You are never going to make it. And so here's what I want you to see or what I want you to hear today as we talk about this is that we've got to figure out how to change the heart. And you know the only way that you can change your heart is you can start with this, Right? The only way you're gonna to get to the place where you think that you need a savior is when you understand how guilty you really are. Like if you don't feel guilty, if you don't think you deserve, right, I want you to hear this and I'm saying it to myself. You know what you deserve? What Jesus got. I don't care if you grew up in a church. I don't care if you've always been in a church. I don't care if your family's always been religious. You know what you deserve? A beating beyond human recognition for the sin of your life. That's what you deserve. You know what you deserve? To spend eternity in isolation in a place called hell where the pain never goes away and the, 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 the curing of your pain is just outside of your stretch, outside of your arm. You're never gonna be able to do it. You're always gonna see something that will take it away, but you'll never be able to reach it for eternity. That's what you deserve and that's what I deserve. But you know what's great? about the gospel, you know what's great about grace? You have an opportunity to not get what you deserve. <laughs> that you today have an opportunity because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to not get what you deserve that you can stand in front of God someday with a celebration and say, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of the actions of your life, but what he did for you and that you can be proclaimed righteous because of the blood that paid for your sin. Isn't that cool? 
that you get a chance for somebody else to pay for your disobedience and your sin. And so what we're celebrating today is the truth of the gospel. You can't get there on your own. You need Jesus. And if you want the power of the gospel in your life, then you need to accept that you will never meet the standard, you will never be good enough, and you will always be guilty until you make a decision in your life. And that is for somebody to pay for what you deserve in your sin. There is no substitute. Not your parents' faith, not the faith that you grew up with, not because you come to church, not because you read your Bible, not because you go to a small group, but because you made a personal decision. I'm guilty and I need somebody to pay for my sin. So here's what we're gonna do. During this last song, we have an opportunity to respond. So if you are someone who confirms today, like, I'm so thankful for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I just hope that you in confirmation will sing and celebrate with us, right? That, that in this moment that we can celebrate what Jesus Christ did for us. There might be some of us in this room today, you know what you need to do? You need to repent. Because you have either been living by a works-based righteousness, you have been teaching a works-based righteousness, you have somehow been believing that the things of your life will make you right with God. And guess what? Even though you've do, done that, you get a chance to say today, you know what? But I will repent. And when you repent, you know what? You know what's so cool? He's not like, okay, let's see if you get it right this time. You know what's so awesome about our Savior? He's not looking at you and saying, well, let's see if you get it right. He's like, come here, welcome to the family. You know when we were talking about what, what's the celebration today? The celebration isn't that you showed up at church. The celebration is that you give your life to Jesus Christ. The celebration is, you know what the angels are celebrating? Lives and hearts that are changed, not bodies in seats, right? Or for you today, this is the first time that you've truly heard the gospel for what it is and the Holy Spirit's moving you. We want an opportunity to pray with you and it's so easy because here's all you have to do. You just have to admit your guilt and accept the grace and mercy that will pay for your sin. Right? That's all it is. And, and we'd love for you to be able to do that today. So will you stand so I can pray for you? So, Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we're just thankful for um, the opportunity to understand the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray today for those of us in this room who need to repent from the works-based salvation, the treadmill that we've been on, Lord. We just want to today get off, put our faith and trust in you, repent from living that life, what we've taught in that life, and just give our lives over to you. Lord, I pray today for those who want new life that they will understand that their guilt is not something and their shame is not something that has to go on forever. That that guilt is something that can be alleviated with the peace that surpasses all understanding through life in you, Jesus. So we pray for those who need that today. Heavenly Father, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. There'll be people up here in the front. If you feel like God's called you to come to the front, there'll be people to pray with you, or you can just come and kneel at the altar.
think there are two incredible things that we can end on. One is we're so thankful for a forgiving Savior that we can come to the altar regardless of the circumstances of life and we can get a new start. Like when we get a new life that we can change direction and there isn't any punishment, it's the grace and mercy that comes with that Savior. You know the greatest thing is? is? Is that we have the privilege to tell everybody else of the Savior we found. Right? We live in a country with the freedom to shout in the streets from the mountaintops and in the buildings that I have a Savior that saved me and he wants to save you. And we're thankful for that. So again, thanks for joining us here at our main campus. Thanks for joining us online. We'll see you guys next week.